Entering the Freedom Hut. Another mass shooting, and now the Democrats are once again insisting on gun control. They don't want to have debate over what kind. They just want the other side to bend the knee. We'll talk about that, plus the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian so far and how this ties into the climate change debate. We've got that and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. He called the national tip line about 15 minutes before his encounter with the troopers. It was, uh, frankly, the rambling statements about some of the atrocities that he felt that he had gone through. He did not make a threat during that phone call. He ended that phone call. Um, after the phone call, we initiated all of our law enforcement procedures, trying to figure out who he was, where he was. Uh, unfortunately, it was only 15 minutes before the, the trooper was engaged. Some really interesting information came out about the gunman that was involved in Saturday's shooting. We know that he had been calling police and the FBI for years, leaving these incoherent messages. And then on Saturday, he actually called them during and after the rampage and actually at one point admitted to being the shooter. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Here we are after Labor Day and the top of the uh, news cycle. The main headlines all have to do with another mass shooting. This time in Odessa, uh, Odessa, Texas. So here's where we are with this so far. Uh, the gunman killed seven, wounded more than 25. It was a shooting rampage. Uh, it seems that this was at least partially sparked by, not due to, but sparked by him being fired. This uh, gunman was fired from a, uh, a job. And uh, now we as tends to be the case in these circumstances, get more background on the shooter. It turns out he was considered uh, volatile, dangerous, nasty, mean. His neighbor said he would shoot at animals at all hours of the night. I don't know how exactly that happened. Um, but they said that they could tell something was, was wrong with him. And this guy had a shootout with police officers, and now we're back to the same place we've been too many times this year, too many times for any country, but we're having a, a debate, a discussion about what to do. Uh, it seems that this individual, this shooter, failed his uh, failed at least one attempt to buy a firearm via background check. So he did get stopped in the background check system. Uh, now they're saying that there needs to be some action taken to prevent someone like him from getting a gun. We'll see as we have more on this. It's believed that he had an AR style rifle that's what i that's what i've been told so far it's always tough whenever you read the the news reports about this because journalists seem completely fine with uh mangling facts and and getting things very wrong when it comes to guns i can't tell you how many times i've read a news report right after one of these shootings and they'll just they'll there'll be reporters who will write who will say on tv you know, an, an AK-47 or AK-47 style rifle. And then it turns out that it was a pretty standard AR-15. You know, they just they get these things wrong all the time. And, and we're told that the details don't matter. Action is all that matters. To that, I always want to say, well, that's exactly wrong if you're talking about changing laws. 
if you're talking about changing society, if there's a, a discussion to be had here about why people are angrier now, why people feel more isolated, is this a result of an increasingly digitally connected but interpersonally disconnected world? Is this the result of uh, the, the isolation that uh, per- particularly males of a certain age feel in this country, the lack of purpose they have in their lives? That's a broader discussion. Whether it's worthwhile or not, I think that depends on the day and the circumstances. Um, But it's certainly a conversation to be had. If you're discussing changing laws, though, the specifics really do matter. They have to matter. And only with firearms do journalists in particular seem to wear their ignorance of the specifics of guns and and the gun control measures that they raise uh, they they wear their ignorance as a badge of honor. They don't care that they get it wrong. They don't care that they say they want to ban automatic machine bazookas with chainsaw bayonets attached to them. It's just the bad people want the guns. The bad people support the Second Amendment. And whatever you have to do to just spit in their faces and change laws in ways that agitate them, that's what needs to be done. That seems to be the... The way that they approach this. We know it's the way they approach this. This is what happens every time this uh, country goes through a a mass shooting like this. This individual, if this was the 1990s, we would have referred to it as as a result of some uh, very terrible shootings involving members of the federal post office. They used to say it was going postal. Remember, that was the term. Someone gets fired at work and then they go in and they engage in a workplace shooting. Uh, Seems like this guy snapped and was already somebody who was very troubled. We'll find out more about the specifics of his background, as we always do. But then we say, okay, well, well, what are we supposed to do about it? And what the left is telling us is that, uh, and I mean, you know, mainstream Democrats, far-left Democrats, all, all of them, um, they just start saying the same stuff they always say. Let's ban assault uh, assault rifles uh, let's make it harder to get a weapon change uh, the specifics of the background check system so there can be no private no private sales between uh, individuals uh, whatever it may be and you know biden for example jumps out and says he's going to take your guns i mean this is now in the midst of an election cycle so you've got democrats that are competing with each other to be more anti-second amendment And that we've had these debates and they keep losing them doesn't matter to them. That they keep losing on the merits. They they hope that through sheer force of will, there will be some, okay, fine, you know, just we'll ban that thing for a while. Just stop complaining about this all the time. That's what they're hoping will happen. I know some of you are saying, you know, Molan Labe, but uh, they're hoping that we just get tired of it and that and, and that the president honestly goes along with it. And there was all that discussion of red flag laws, and we've already now seen some reports of abuse of red flag laws that are on the books in certain states. Uh, But Joe Biden, for example, to my point about the uh, specifics here, the specifics of what they want to do, Joe Biden wants to get rid of magazines. At least he didn't say clip, which I know people really dislike. Uh, magazines that can, quote, hold multiple bullets. 
you see a mass shooting. I guess the numbers now, I was on a plane the last two and a half hours. They got up to five killed. Um, and we're talking about loosening access to uh, have guns, be able to take them into places of worship, store them in school. I mean, it's just absolutely irrational. It's totally irrational. And it's all about special interest. And it has to stop. It has to stop. The idea that we don't have elimination of assault-type weapons, magazines that can hold multiple bullets in them, is absolutely mindless. It is no violation of the Second Amendment. It is uh, it's just a, a bow to the special interest of the gun manufacturers in the NRA. It's got to stop. I'm pretty sure that all magazines can hold multiple rounds or else they're not really very much uh, very much used to anyone. Now, you might say Biden had another Biden gaffe. He misspoke. Okay, but if you're going to be advocating, you know, if you were advocating for a change in the tax code and you said, you know, everybody knows that you pay, you know, you pay your income taxes by sending a check to the government every month, they might say, well, that's no, that's not really how it works. There's withholding. And you're supposed to know about the thing you're talking about. With guns, that's not the that's not a requirement. It's just you have to emote properly. You have to show the proper level of distaste for gun owners, distaste for the the Second Amendment in general. And and the special interest line I find particularly agitating um, because, okay, every person that's listening to this right now, not all of you agree with me on guns. A lot of you do. A lot of you believe in the right, I'd say a vast majority, I'm going to go out there on a limb, say a vast majority believe in the right to bear arms. And yet, uh, I sit here and I say to myself, okay, well, if I'm going to try to convince you of something, don't I have to know something about that subject matter? Isn't it necessary to understand the thing that I'm going to talk about that I'm going to present to you? Uh, for Democrats, the, an- the answer is obviously no. They'd rather talk about special interests. Are you a special interest listening to this? Or are you just a person that wants the right to defend yourself and believes in an armed citizenry as a defense against tyranny? Which is it? This, this whole special interest thing, they always say. All, I mean, I, I could have this show. We could do a show right now where we just line up calls and you all tell me why you believe in the right to bear arms. None of you are paid by any special interest. None of you are a member of some special interest. I mean, maybe you're an NRA member, maybe you're not, but none of you are getting anything out of that, out of that other than your belief in the Constitution, the Second Amendment, and the right to bear arms. So why, why always make it about special interests? It's about individual citizens and their rights. And why is it okay to not know what the heck they're talking about? And, and I, I don't think it is okay. I, I think that it just goes to show you that this is uh, largely posturing. This is a a political fad on the left to make as much noise as possible about about the desire to to end gun violence in this country without ever taking into account that most gun violence is occurring as a result of day to day criminality in poor parts of major cities, often involving the drug trade. And there's so much less urgency to do anything about that. Problem. That's where a vast majority of the you're talking about in mass shootings any given year, maybe two to three hundred people. And that's including just shootings that involve more than three individuals of any kind. Maybe you're talking about a couple hundred people in any given year might get killed in in a in mass shooting incidents. Thousands and thousands of people are killed in 
criminal in homicides, uh, you know, criminal activities across the country. And there's so much less urgency about it. Why? Because this has become a stand in. The gun issue is really a cultural issue. It's a how you view the government, how you view individual rights versus the right of the state to dictate to you what you can and can't have, what you can and can't do. Uh, This is uh, it's a wedge issue if you're going to use political consultancy terms. And that's why it's being exploited in this way. No one really thinks that we're going to what there's some fix out there that is going to stop mass shootings from happening. If if I believe that, I'd say, let's do the fix. And they keep saying that there need to be uh, common sense gun reforms. Okay, we already have a lot of gun laws on the books. There are already all kinds of restrictions. Is Biden really so stupid? And I ask that not entirely rhetorically because I don't think the man is very bright. But is he so stupid that he can't understand that allowing law-abiding, decent Americans to carry, say, in church or in other places that had been considered up to this point gun-free zones just means that there's a chance, a chance that a good guy or girl with a gun will be there in the moment that a mass shooter wants to unleash his uh, evil on a defenseless group of people. The mass shooter doesn't care that the, that the church is a gun-free zone. Is, is anyone really too stupid to understand this concept? I mean, libs just... It's like you're having a conversation with people that are pretending not to understand the English language all of a sudden. Gun-free zones do nothing to protect anyone from predators who have firearms who want to kill a lot of innocent people. They do nothing. All they do is ensure the people in that place can't defend themselves. They are sitting ducks. So when Biden says things like, it's all about special interests, the Constitution doesn't... Oh, here, here you go. Here's another one. Joe, Joe Biden, constitutional scholar uh, extraordinaire. Do we have him on this? Yeah, here we go. Let's get something straight. I think the Second Amendment in fact, says people have a right to bear arms. But, but, here's the deal. The deal is like every amendment, for example, First Amendment, you have free speech. No one in here can stand up and yell fire because it will cause damage. People will rush out of here. People will get hurt. Every single solitary amendment has a limitation on it. Now, the limitation that exists on, on, on the Second Amendment is Nowhere does it say you can own any kind of weapon you want. Nowhere does it say, no, nowhere does it say anyone can own a weapon. Okay, Joe, but the laws currently don't say you can own any weapon you want. You need to get a special license. It's expensive and annoying to be able to buy a fully automatic weapon, and very few people go through that process. You can't just go buy an automatic weapon, for example. You can't just go buy a Stinger missile. You can't just go buy a, you know, fully functional, if you had the money, uh, you know, Aegis missile system. I mean, you know, you can't do these things, so there already are restrictions. And not anyone can own a firearm. Felons can't own firearms. People that have been adjudicated mentally uh, mentally ill or, or have been committed can't own a firearm. People committed for crimes of uh, domestic violence, convicted of them, can't. So... It's like he's pretending we live in a different country than we do. This is why this discussion is so frustrating. 
at least stop saying things that are flatly untrue. Biden, Dems, Libs, and then looking at us and saying, why won't you listen to our untrue things and do the things we want you to do? If they can get past that, well, then at least there's room for a constructive conversation. What we have right now is just they're making stuff up. They don't know what the heck they're talking about. And I'm sorry, but I don't like to take orders about things like laws from people who don't know what they're talking about. So libs need to go through a whole process of education on the Second Amendment. And then perhaps there's a more fulsome discussion to be had about what additional restrictions and checks could be in place. Short of that, this is just now, it's, it's, a, it's a game of emotional posturing for these politicians on the left. It's just, oh, you know, the NRA is evil and it's like a terrorist organization and all this nonsense. Anyway, we're, we're just beginning to scratch the surface on this. We'll be right back. The rhetoric that you've used, the thoughts and prayers that you just referred to, it has done nothing to stop the epidemic of gun violence, to protect our kids, our families, our fellow Americans in public places at a Walmart in El Paso where 22 were killed in Sutherland Springs in a church, uh, one or two a day all over this country, 100 killed daily in the United States of America. We're averaging about 300 mass shootings a year. No other country comes close. So, yes, this is up. And if we don't call it out for what it is, if we're not uh, able to speak clearly, if we're not able to act decisively, then we will continue to have this kind of bloodshed in America. And I cannot accept that. I just like I just want to say to you that even though I can't get like more than four percent of the American people to vote for me, that I have the answer to this problem, which is to make sure that I like drop an F-bomb so everyone knows how serious I am. And then after being really emotional about how I want to stop the gun violence, I'm just going to be like, take action and do stuff and not say what it is because it's so obvious how to stop it all if it weren't for special interests and the NRA and like all the bad Republican people. Not that obvious, is it, Beto? But a lot of things aren't obvious to Beto. That's a conversation for another time. I've also asked the school board to make a part of every day some kind of anti-violence, anti-gun message. Every day, every school, at every level. One thing that I think is clear with young people and with adults as well is that we just have to be repetitive about this. It's not enough to simply have a, a catchy ad on a Monday and then only do it every Monday. We need to do this every day of the week and just really brainwash people into thinking about guns in a vastly different way. We also want to uh, have a hotline that we will set up and have the number of that hotline that we just go out there and that would be something that people would have emblazoned in their minds so that when they see a gun or become familiar about the facts of a gun crime they would call that hotline and pass that information on there you had obama's attorney general eric holder who is telling you exactly what the left-wing approach is which is to brainwash people to think about he didn't say brainwash people against gun violence because that's kind of a what, what would that even mean he says brainwash people to think about guns in a vastly different way how so The problem here isn't the gun. Guns are a tool. The problem is the individual who chooses violence and and evil. And unfortunately, we've been unable to figure out how to live in a society without that. 
Uh, and I don't think we ever will achieve a society entirely without that. And for those who think, oh, but if only there were no guns in America, which is a totally unrealistic proposition with over 300 million guns currently in circulation. But if, if only they didn't have them, we'd have so much less violence. Uh, I think there were eight people who were just killed by a maniac willing a knife in China. Eight at once. So if people want to hurt other people, they'll find ways to do it. And particularly if bad guys want to use a gun to hurt people, there are enough guns in the world that they will often be able to get one. People remember the uh, the Bataclan massacre and some of the major terrorist attacks in Europe. Uh, places like France that have pretty strict gun laws. Turns out, well, Belgium doesn't have very strict gun laws. so You can get a gun there and then you just got, I mean, this is. The case all over the place. There's always an underworld. There's always going to be an illegal market for firearms. So we can't entirely ban them. So what are we really talking about? What do they think is going to make the situation better? Banning assault rifles? This is crazy. Is that, are you going to grandfather in the millions and millions of ARs that are already in private hands? Or are you going to do a, a forced a forced buyback it's just confiscation with some compensation and a lot of you're going to be like first of all there's no way they're going to give me the money that i paid into this thing especially if you've done some modifications and changed the rail system and i don't know if they're going to pay for the optics that you have for your firearm that now might be useless to you without that firearm but they're being pretty explicit the democrats the left they really do just want to take away your guns and in, in case you think that i'm taking a little far or Saying a little too much about it. Um, here's Beto again, Democrat presidential candidate for whatever that's worth, telling you that, oh, no, he's going to grab your guns. How do you address the fears that the government is going to take away this uh, assault rifles as you call them if you're talking about buybacks and banning? Yeah. So I, I want to be really clear that um, that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, Americans will who own AR-15s, AK-47s, will have to sell them to the government. We're, we're not going to allow them to stay on our streets, to show up in our communities. Have to sell them. Do they get to set the price? No, this is this is confiscation. This is a a program of taking private property and violating a, violating the Constitution to do so. Uh, and then they have to deal with the reality that a tiny fraction of gun violence comes from rifles of any kind. Handguns that kill over 90 percent of people that are, are uh, killed by any firearms in this country every year. It's over 95 percent, actually, I believe. Handguns. So what are we what, what all this focus, all these people talking about this issue this is the biggest. Oh, if we could only solve this problem, they're not even talking about solving in a meaningful way. They don't know what the heck they're talking about or they just lie about it. I mean, here's a worth here's a worthwhile exchange, for example. Uh, you have Chris Murphy, who's a, I don't know if he's a he's a congressman from Connecticut. Uh, he wrote to Ted Cruz on Twitter. You're right, Ted. It's hard to do this issue justice on Twitter, but I commend you for trying. Here's my side of the argument on why the Second Amendment is about collective, not personal defense. And allows the government to reasonably condition firearms ownership. Uh, First, Ted, you selectively quoted the amendment. It actually reads a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It references militias, not personal defense, for a reason. 
The founders were strongly opposed to America having a standing army. Madison called it an instrument of tyranny, but a young America needed to defend itself. This is where militias come in and the need to make sure citizens were armed in order to serve. Nowhere in Madison's copious notes from the Constitutional Convention does he mention the Second Amendment being about the private right of gun ownership and the term bear arms, which today is connected with private gun ownership, back then was connected to militias. All of that is wrong. This is a, this is a sitting U.S. lawmaker and everything that he wrote there, you know, in public for everyone to see is pretty much, I mean, everything of any consequence is incorrect. Wrong. I turn you to, I, I, I was thinking about jumping in, but my friend Charles Cook beat me to it on Twitter. Charles Cook over from National Review, who does have the best British accent. Um, he wrote uh, in response to the congressman from Connecticut, quote, you're going to get the most almighty shock when you get around to reading the Constitution of Connecticut, which from the moment the state has had one, has held that Quote, every citizen has a right to bear arms in defense of himself and the state. Charles then writes, you'll be equally shocked when you learn that the Philadelphia Constitution of 1776, which predates the Second Amendment, reads that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state and does so in the same sentence. It bars standing armies. And then just to finish this up, Charles writes, And I can barely imagine the scale of your surprise when you learn that Madison didn't take notes on the first Ten Amendments at the convention because the first Ten Amendments were added later at the behest of those who thought the enumerated powers doctrine would be abused. In essence, your position is that our reading of the Second Amendment is a modern mistake that was made before it was written by Pennsylvania and Vermont, which copied it verbatim, and immediately afterwards by your own state, whose constitution you have apparently never read. Boom, as the kids would say. That's that's gonna that's gonna leave a mark. Um, yeah. Here you have a sitting Democrat lawmaker who one doesn't know that doesn't know what happened to the constitutional convention, which you'd think if your job was. To write laws and and your body of uh, your body of legislatures derives its very creation from a document that you have some sense of the history and what happened there, especially if you're going to lecture people about that. Uh, but no, it turns out that this uh, he's a senator, by the way, I've been saying congressman. It turns out that senator senator from Connecticut doesn't know that there were no notes taken by Madison at the Constitutional Convention on the Second Amendment because there was no amendment. That's why it was an amendment to the Constitution. So, yeah. Folks, here's a sitting United States Senator. When I tell you that they don't know what what the heck they're talking about, I really mean it. They just don't know. And the the media apparatus, at at the highest level, the top anchors at ABC and CNN, the top uh, newsroom editors and editorial writers, the New York Times, Washington Post, don't know anything about guns. They've overwhelmingly, they don't know the, the history of Second Amendment jurisprudence. They don't know, they just don't know people who own guns. They feel uncomfortable. If you were to walk into a restaurant in Virginia doing open carry, you know, the, the editorial uh, team at the New York Times, if they were sitting there, 
they would feel threatened by that. They, they, a lot of them would, would be ill at ease with that. You know, they just don't know that part of America that bears arms. They really don't. They think that it's a, a function for the state and the state alone and rich and connected people who can afford private security and all the rest of it, right? Uh, I, I, I guess we, we have to keep having... It's, it's frustrating because it's the same argument. It's the same argument over and over, and they lose on the merits, but they're just trying to wear us all down and to find, well, just, just so the libs stop pretending that we don't care about dead children, which they will openly say. I mean, D- uh, David Hogg, the celebrated leftist gun control activist, tweeted out that it should be, you know, why is it, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, why is it harder to vote than it is to buy an AR-15? What? In, in what way is that true? Um, and, and then someone else who was a journalist, I forget it was, but a blue check journal tweeted, why is it harder to buy Sudafed than an AR-15? You keep hearing this. First of all, you know, Sudafed doesn't cost a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks, whatever. It depends on what kind of AR I guess you get. Uh, Sudafed doesn't have background checks associated with it. Doesn't have all kinds of laws and regulations about prohibited possessor. Uh, doesn't have rules about where you can take your Sudafed and you know I, how you can store your. Sudafed. It's just it's so stupid that I feel stupid even talking about it. But this is what the journalists say about it. Just don't know what they're talking about and they don't care. They want to yell at you and make you do what they say. And you have to just wallow in their ignorance with them. Journos are activists. They're overwhelmingly liberal, as you know. 90% plus of journalists are Democrats. Many of them are really just socialists. They call themselves Democrats. Uh, And they think that the role that they play must always be, ultimately, about pushing the left-wing agenda in many, many different ways. Uh, And that means often racking up a list of people that they have ruined, that they have destroyed, who were considered a a threat to the left wing agenda or perhaps were um, in some way just needed to be made an example of. And we have another such case today with a fellow from Bloomberg named Ben Penn. Ben Penn. Uh, and he published a piece in Bloomberg um, under Bloomberg's law vertical saying that the Labor Department was employing a senior advisor named Leif Olson who had posted anti-Semitic comments on Facebook. And he wrote a whole story about this, and and he also called different uh, senior... uh, management at the Department of Labor and I believe also uh, at the White House saying do you realize that you that we have unearthed Facebook posts from Leif Olson showing that he made anti-Semitic comments that he has you know and and perhaps harbors anti-Semitic beliefs as a result and Leif Olson uh, who is married with children was it is believed asked to resign resigned from his job now lost his job because of this and now there's a backlash, as there should be, because people have caught on. They've seen the posts, and it is stunningly obvious that this fellow who was working in the Department of Labor for the Trump administration was 
being sarcastic and, in fact, mocking the very mentality of anti-Semitism that he is accused of in the posts. It, it is clear when you when you read it exactly what is going on. Uh, yet the damage is already done. He has lost his job and he, uh, you know, perhaps may never. Well, hopefully his reputation will recover and people realize what has gone on here. But it is stunning to read how dishonestly this was uh, this was reported. And by the way, the comments were were old. I'm trying to find exactly what the date was here. But it was about, uh, here you go. On August 12th, conservative lawyer Leif Olson began work. This is from Tablet Magazine in the Trump administration's Department of Labor. On August 30th, he resigned. Bloomberg Law published reporting that prompted his departure, a, sh- a seemingly shocking expose of his anti-Semitism. The only problem? The entire allegation was false. Simply put, poor reporting took Olson's clear mockery of the alt-right and recast it as support. The Bloomberg article opens like this. A recently appointed Trump Labor Department official with a history of advancing controversial conservative and faith-based causes in court has resigned after revelations that he wrote a 2016, 2016, folks, now three years ago, Facebook post suggesting the Jewish-controlled media protects their own and the piece had screenshots from olson's facebook page uh quote if one made only a cursor reading of the post one might think olson was suggesting that house speaker paul ryan uh was some sort of crypto jew and that the jews look after their own a closer reading however shows just the opposite that reading requires one key bit of context Ryan had just defeated Paul Nalen, a white supremacist anti-Semite who had been boosted by Breitbart in his local Wisconsin primary. Nalen was later banned from Twitter after harassing many Jewish journalists, including myself. This was written by, uh, I believe, John, uh, oh no, Yair Rosenberg, pardon me. Is it, is it Yair Rosenberg? I'm trying to find the uh, byline here. Anyway. Um, mocking, hold on a second. Uh, mocking Breitbart's breathless boosterism of Nalen, he wrote, Establishment insider rhino corporate tool Paul Ryan was finally brought to heel in tonight's primary by an uprising of the conservative masses. The guy just suffered a massive historic emasculating 70-point victory. Let's see him and his Georgetown cocktail party puppet masters try to walk that one off. Olsen was making fun. Making fun of the mentality that he is accused of having. It is clear in the context. It is clear from everybody who has read this honestly. And yet he's already he's already fired. He's gone. I mean, they asked him to resign. What the heck is Bloomberg doing? Bloomberg uh, law. But you, this is the problem, folks. Even though this journalist is now getting a lot of heat, as he should, for for really hurting an innocent person's career, livelihood, and perhaps life, They won't be chastened by this at all. You know why? They just like to flex this muscle once in a while. The cancel culture, the left is obsessed with it. And even if they cancel the wrong guy or gal once in a while, they just want everyone to know, oh yeah, they can still get you canceled even if you're innocent. There were floods and fires and storms before, but the severity and the frequency of these weather events is unquestionably accelerating. And it is simply unacceptable that 
we're having a debate over whether to deal with climate change. The only acceptable debate is how to deal with it. Uh, there you have Mayor Pete, who is a Rhodes Scholar, speaks all these languages. We're always told he's so brilliant and all this stuff. Uh, what he said is not true. It's just factually not true about we have more storms, worse storms. This is just, first of all, you'd have to establish, to even have that conversation, you'd have to establish the parameters of where? In America? What kind of storms? Are we judging them by the severity of the damage or the, 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 the speed of the winds? Is one really big storm that does a tremendous damage a bigger concern than five smaller? You know, uh, what does it mean to say we just have more storms and they're, and they're, they're worse? Okay, of what quantity? Where? It's just, folks, it's propaganda. It's all just propaganda. Get people to say this. Repeat this. Uh, and he says it's unacceptable to have a... Uh, debate about this. Oh, and then, of course, because because science. We don't have a moment to lose. The deadlines for getting this done are not being set by politics. They're being set by science. The only question is whether politics can keep up. And this deserves to be a central issue in the 2020 campaign. It's a central issue in my campaign. And uh, we'll know that we're succeeding when we're actually taking concrete action that's out of proportion with the, the level of the problem. It's just all blather, folks. The deadline is being set by science. Really? Okay. What is science saying about the deadline? It's what? Because we've already passed the initial science deadline from 2005 when they were telling us that Al Gore was the great messenger of saving the planet. So we're going to believe the science. This Does it matter that the science was wrong last time? Does, does anyone? Are we allowed to care about that? Are we allowed to point out that they got this very wrong in the past? No. Hmm. I'd like to know. I'd like to know why. I'd like to know why that's not relevant. But let's take sanctimonious Mayor Pete at his word for a moment. And I I have to say, he is only slightly to me more likable than Beto O'Rourke these days. He's really in that bottom tier of candidates who have. Very little. He just, he seems, I've said it before, he seems joyless. Just utterly joyless. Never looks like he's enjoying the life of being out there trying to convince the American people. It's like, why don't more people listen to him? He's so smart and great, and it's ridiculous that he has to explain this to all the dumb people who don't understand how smart he is. Meanwhile, what he says on climate change is laughable. It's preposterous. I would bet any amount of money that I have. I'd, 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 I wish there was a way... That we could really force all these people to put out there, okay, science says there's a deadline. What's the deadline? And what does science say we have to do? And if, in fact, we can't, you know, we skip past that, I don't want to hear anymore about how science said we had a deadline and we missed it. And, you know, now there's a new deadline. (laughs) I don't want to hear it because we've missed the deadline. You know, we have to establish accountability for this propaganda. And the only way to do it is to force people down uh, into the specifics. You know, he says that we can't have a debate over whether to deal with climate change. The only acceptable debate is how to deal with it. Okay, well, that's a huge, that's a huge part of the debate. How should we deal with it? I mean, the Green New Deal is, is crazy. You have Democrat politicians out there who are suggesting that we take massive government action that is completely 
and utterly bonkers. But we're supposed to pretend that everything is fine? We're supposed to believe that, oh, okay, uh, they got it so wrong on that, but they're going to be right on everything else? Everyone knows the Green New Deal is a joke, except the people that are pushing climate change hysteria because they figure, well, it got a lot of attention, and we we just, this is, it's like a zombie belief. You, you cannot make this belief go away. You cannot make this belief stop. It just keeps coming. It's a Terminator belief. You know, it emerges from the from the flames of its own wrongness. Never stops. How to deal with climate change? Uh, we're dealing. See, this is the other part that they ignore. Climate change is real. It's just not what they say it is. It's a naturally occurring phenomenon that has always been occurring. Uh, it is not going to be catastrophic. They've been wrong about that every time in the past. And we are naturally And from a technological perspective, very rapidly decarbonizing in our energy usage all the time. We've gone from coal to oil to natural gas to hopefully now increasingly going to rely on nuclear. These are the smart things that we should be doing. This This is a serious path forward, a serious way to do this. Uh, But instead, they just want to wag their finger at people because, look, it's a religious belief. For people who think they are too smart for religion. That's what climate change has become. It's a it's a hysteria. It's something that, you know, it, it reminds me of somebody who gets a little bit too involved in, you know, rooting for their college team and really thinks that they're on the team when, you know, they're on the team in that they're in the nosebleed section of the giant stadium yelling at the team. But that's not the same thing as being on the team. People can get delusional about things pretty easily. And climate change is a a delusion. And if it's not enough to hear Mayor Pete speak a bunch of nonsense about it, here's what Joe Biden says. Climate change it is an existential threat. This guy can no longer deny the science. I mean, if we could call, well, if there were a parliamentary system, we'd call for elections tomorrow, not because we're in good or bad shape, but because we can't wait another 18 months to, for something to happen in terms of climate. What's he need? Does he need, you know... Gabriel to come down and say, hey, this is a real problem. I mean, it's gigantic what's happening. The largest storm in the Atlantic, anyway. Notice how he, he started to get into a specific, the lar- largest storm, uh, largest storm since, since when, Joe? There were storms in the early 1900s that devastated areas, killed far more people. The largest storm since when? Since what? No, notice it just trails off. and It's just all blather. That people say this stuff and think that they're smart. I'm always amazed that they think that I'm crazy. I look at them and say, do you really think that I, I don't want a planet for future generations to inhabit? You know, I don't get any oil money. I, I don't get anything from them. I also know that there are some anecdotal or some observational reasons why we know these people are all full of crap. You know, it, it's the, oh, Obama just bought a $15 million beach house on a on a tiny island in the middle of the Atlantic. I don't think he's that worried about climate change. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio, Al Gore, the spokespersons for this hashtag science aren't in fact scientists. They're celebrities who don't know a damn thing about science. Does anyone care? Does it matter? You know, do you see somebody uh, stepping forward to say, hey, I've 
uh, I'm, I'm doing great research. I think we might actually have had a breakthrough with, say, a, uh, a, an AIDS vaccine. Is that going to be a scientist or is that going to be some guy, you know, named Phil, who like is a washed up actor who becomes the spokesperson for the vaccine? No, the people involved, the scientists who are accountable are the ones who are putting their names behind whatever it may be. And there's a way to check their work. There are ways to see whether they're right or they're wrong. I mean, the just the parameters of what's considered acceptable the acceptable ranges for the climate change group. This would never work if you were testing a new heart medicine. Yeah, like maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. We're not really sure, but, you know, we must act now and make everyone take this drug for their heart. You couldn't do that because that's real science. This isn't science. They don't know. They have no idea. And it's so obvious. And that Joe Biden, Joe Biden hasn't read a, a thing about Science, the environment. I mean, don't even get me started on. Did I have I even talked to you guys about Darwin recently? I don't think I've talked to you about Darwin. Oh, oh, oh. maybe I'll. That might get me into some. Get me into some hot water. I, I mean, you know what? I, I could do some of that when we uh, when we come back. I'll get I'll get into that. Sir, you want to hear some? Cra- you want to hear some crazy talk? I, I got some crazy talk for you. Maybe Darwin was wrong about some very important stuff. <gasps> I know. Oh, where's like media matters? He's saying it. Oh no! I'll just give you the. I'll just give you a little bit of the case on that. I mean, this this ties into climate change. They're so sure about this, just like they've been so sure. They've. I learned in uh, in freshman biology in high school, Darwin was treated like Sir Isaac Newton. You know, the thing that's funny about Newton is that a lot of the stuff that he came up with has been right is was right then and is right now because it was fact it was real science darwin had theories theories we'll we'll address that maybe yeah i'll do it today i feel like it let's get into it i'll be right back can't see how they haven't come up with some kind of way to come combat these storms yet they keep saying uh, you know two days ago three days ago oh it said this but it's going to hit all this warm weather all this warm weather and warm water. We have a Navy. Why don't the Navy come and drop ice in the warm water so it, that it can't get going as fast as it's going? There's got to be ways to combat this instead of just pointing at the thing and saying, well, it's uh, now it's getting worse. Yeah, we know it's getting worse, but you tell us, oh, it's the warm weather. Oh, it's the wind. Well, we have an Air Force. Drive some Air Force planes around to get the winds going the opposite way the navy to go in circles to fight it the other way and we got an air force you know warm weather with the air force right mark air force drop some ice cubes with the warm weather done sounds plausible yeah so so that guy who's just being referred to in media as florida man uh over the weekend who just did an interview you know like this is in preparation for for all the folks and thoughts and prayers go out to everybody affected by the hurricane i know um, the, the bahamas got really battered by it and i know it's it's been uh very tough on on everyone that's been affected by it but you know there is a a moment here um where we have a a reminder one of our fragility at some level in in the face of of mother nature still despite our tremendous technology and and, but then also there is a real lack of of public understanding of much of the science that can affect our day-to-day lives. And this makes me think a bit about, you know, because you have this guy who's talking about 
dropping ice cubes or whatever it was with the Air Force and everything else. But here, here's the truth. Uh, creative thinking, outside-the-box thinking, always seems at first like it's completely, uh, it's completely unacceptable, totally bizarre, right? I mean, creative thinking um, or, or thinking that contradicts the, the dominant scientific consensus is always going to be shouted down. Now, I don't think random Florida man has some way of stopping hurricanes, but I would note that there is a, a real intellectual insecurity that's on display for much of the media when they talk about anything that has to do with science, because the truth is, if you're working in media and hey, look, I, I'm in this I'm in this uh, boat as well. If you're working in the media, you're not somebody, generally speaking, who has a science background. And you tend to think that all you have to do is repeat what other people who have science backgrounds say without doing any real thinking about it on your own. And you find yourself sounding smart without knowing anything that which is really the goal of most people that are on to, in the news media. I'm talking about that's the goal. Sound smart without knowing anything. And I always try to approach this with with a humility of I don't understand uh, the underlying science for a lot of things. I mean, ask somebody sometime to explain to you how the cooling unit of an HVAC system works and see how much they know about thermodynamics and physics. And, you know, look, there's a lot that we don't. How does a TV work? We don't know. We, we stand on the shoulders of geniuses every day. But we should at least know why we think we know what we do. And this then brings me and this the climate change discussion got me pointing this direction. And this might be a, a shorter uh, treatment of the subject than is really due. But, you know, David uh, Galertner, who I think is a computer science professor at Yale, recently wrote about how he crunched the numbers. Because remember, Darwin's theory of evolution came out before, you know, Charles Darwin came up with with his theory of evolution. Uh, the origin of species was written before we knew anything about DNA, DNA sequencing, microbiology, didn't know anything about that. He just had this theory like, well, animals will mate and then they'll, they'll be mutations and the mutations will result in not just adaptations, which that's real. That's part of the genius of Darwin. If you, know, if you have a, if, if there's some dogs that live in colder areas, they'll grow thicker fur and their, their offspring will have uh, thicker fur. You know, the, the genes can adjust to that. But entirely new species is based on random mutation. Just all of a sudden, this little little gene goes, whoop, I'm going to have a random mutation. And now we're going to have, you know, this is how uh, Triceratops turns into a pheasant, basically, you know, to make it very simplified. Well, turns out that uh, that's, if we're going to be honest about this, mathematically Impossible. And this is what Gelertner gets into. Random mutation create based on the sequencing of of DNA, based on sequencing of, of genes that we have and what we know about uh, molecular biology. Random mutations can't do that. The mathematical odds are in, in the realm of the impossible. You know, it would be uh, in the hundreds of trillions to one kind of level you know it's just not feasible that that is what happened and that happened time and again and again and again you know millions and millions of times and that it's not feasible without there also being species that came about that had the random mutation that 
that had random mutations that were uh, bad, essentially, that were, you know, uh, deleterious for the species. So at some point, you have to look at this and say, yeah, where in the fossil record are those transitional species? And this is where you get into the, the Cambrian and the, and the pre-Cambrian period of fossils where you just have this explosion of all these new species and you start to have a more a, a more scientific discussion about the possibility of intelligent design, whatever that means. Intelligent design by journalists is ridiculed, ridiculed. Meanwhile, if you bring up to them what I've just told you about, it is it is mathematically not possible to have millions of new species created without leaving behind any fossil record of mutational missteps. Uh, millions of new species created based on random mutation. Just the gene did this thing and then the other genes. They'll have no answer for you whatsoever. And then, you know what they'll tell you? You're a science denier. You're a Bible thumper. You probably don't believe in climate change because for so many people, and this is true. This has been true of statists and socialists for the last 150 years. They always, they'll, they'll refer to scientific socialism, in fact. They think that there's, there's a way that their belief system, it doesn't have to, they don't have to persuade you. It's not an argument about, about judgment. They're right. They're factually, scientifically right on these matters. And when you challenge them on that and point out that they don't even know what the science would be, they lose their minds on you and they freak out. And it's worth noting that uh, that's because there's a deep intellectual insecurity that a lot of people in public life, including Biden and Buttigieg and all these other climate change alarmists have about the, the science. They don't understand the first thing about the science. Ask questions. That's no, science. No, not judgment, but one. details. Detail. That's something I've heard from some voters, maybe not at your events, but well, details. No, but the details are irrelevant in terms of decision making. If, in fact, I forget that it was Rodriguez of all the times I've been in and out of Afghanistan and Iraq and Bosnia and Kosovo as much as anybody except maybe my deceased friend John McCain and maybe Lindsey Graham. And so the fact that I would forget that it was Rodriguez who was pinning, I believe this is the case, pinning a bronze star on a young man uh, was, it's, it's irrelevant to the point. It's like saying I had this very bright reporter and I think her eyes were blue. What difference would it make about whether you were a bright reporter? Your eyes are brown. It's irrelevant, and you know it. Details are irrelevant in terms of decision-making. Oh, well, here we, here we have uh, Joe Biden continuing to just hold on. I, I, it's amazing, I will say. I did not think he would have a lead that was going to continue, that was this strong and this sustainable, but... Despite the gaffes, despite the things that he says that are clearly uh, just ridiculous, uh, he, he says things that for another candidate, if he wasn't Joe Biden, if he wasn't in this position, uh, I think he would be long gone out of this race. They, they've just he is the Hillary of this moment. The, this person is well known enough and can win. So we're going to vote for this person who's well known enough and can win. But but Biden is just not intellectually impressive, and he's beyond that. People might say, "Oh, but Buck, what about is is Trump intellectually impressive?" Yeah, but Biden's also never shown any winner instincts. I think you could call them. He was a 
an unimportant senator from a small state whose biggest accomplishment as a politician has really been continuing to get elected, you know, term after term. That's really it. Uh, and and a, and a history, a, a consistent wrongness on all important foreign policy matters. Um, so that's that's pretty much what you get with Biden. And, and then also a lot of a lot of gaffes and a lot of unimpressive nonsense from him. Uh, but now he's saying the details don't matter. It's all about the decision making. I could buy that or I, I could be a little more accepting of that if. The details, uh, if the decision making that we had seen from Biden had been sound up to this point, if he had been impressive in his judgment on important issues, I'd say, you know what, fine. Sometimes he gets a little fuzzy on facts, but overall he makes the right call. That's not the case with Biden. Biden is wrong on judgment and wrong on the information. He's really just not an impressive fellow. And Democrats are doing everything they can. It's so much deja vu from Hillary in 2016 because they're trying to prop this guy up. They are trying to push forward with a candidate that they have to know is is deeply flawed. And look, Obama, to his credit, understood that Biden is just not really up for this, which is why he would tell Joe Biden You know, you don't have to do this. It's also why Biden wasn't the Democrats nominee after a very popular Democrat president for eight years that he had served under as vice president. He wasn't the nominee in 2016 because they must know deep down that he can't get it done. But but he's a candidate that they think they can create enough of a narrative around. He's known enough that the story, you know, the the force of the media narrative seems to be the thing that they believe is going to push him push him forward. I still believe uh, that Elizabeth Warren is, if you're asking me today who I think is going to be the nominee, I still think it's going to be Elizabeth Warren, which I thought if you would ask, and then again, this stuff keeps changing, right? Because if someone had said that Elizabeth Warren, uh, right after her whole, oh, look at me, I'm actually, I, I can prove my Cherokee heritage. After that debacle, she'd be the nominee. I would have said, that's crazy. No way is she going to, but here we are, changing my tune. I'm going to change my tune again a few times before this whole thing is over. Uh, And then we have Warren, though, on some of her more progressive ideas. I have to say, uh, a a wealth tax starts to get my little, starts to get my Marxist side tingling a little bit here. Not that I'm a Marxist, but, you know, if we're going to be radicals, let's at least be radicals that are, really going for it, because I would just love to see the hypocrisy of all the people that oppose uh, wealth tax. Here's what she says. Play 10. So let me talk to you about what a wealth tax looks like, because now comes the fun part. What can we do with two cents in America? I'll tell you exactly what we can do. First, we can have universal child care for every baby in this country age zero to five. 100% of them. Universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old in this country. Raise the wages right of every she, preschool she, teacher. She wants you to hand your babies over to the government to have them raise them, folks. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. Soviet Union had a very similar program, for whatever it's worth. I, I know people are going to get mad at me for saying it. It's true. Soviets had a child care program. Everybody had access to it. 
wasn't very good, I would not have recommended it to you or your child. I think it's going to be war, and we'll see if I'm right. If you ever talk to a lib, which I don't always recommend doing, just kidding, I talk to libs a lot, but whenever you talk to a lib and, and you, you discuss with them the uh, realities of the people they think in the news media that, that they think are informed and those who aren't, they believe, they really do believe that these uh, left-wing news anchors, particularly those at CNN and MSNBC, uh, are just better informed and smarter than their conservative counterparts. Uh, they have a broader base of knowledge, a better understanding of the facts, of the policies. Leftists really believe that. Now, it will come as no shock to you that I'm here to tell you that that is not true, that there is not a single person at MSNBC or CNN who is an anchor that I would have a moment's pause about debating on any topic of, of public importance and that I would even for, I, I would think would be much trouble, honestly, in a debate other than just relying on the usual smears and talking points about everything conservative. Um, but I don't think that they're, they have particularly intellectually adept people in the the biggest jobs at MSNBC and CNN. Uh, one person who in particular is held up, I think because he looks he looks kind of like a a policy wonk. And so that makes leftists think that it's the same reason why at CNN they're like, oh, he's got a British accent like Piers Morgan. Put him on TV. Right. I mean, this is it's not just CNN where they do that. But there are plenty of places where, oh, that guy's got a British accent. He must be smart. Put him on TV. It's like, we're in America. Speak American. Uh, but Chris Hayes looks he looks like a policy wonk. Sounds like a policy wonk. I mean, I mean tonally, you know, well, I'm Chris Hayes, and I'm going to talk about this thing. It's a little bit like Brian Stelter in terms of the voice register. Uh, not as, not nearly as nerdy, though, of course. Um, but if he's their their big, uh, their, their you know chief intellectual on their primetime lineup, which I think they'd probably say Maddow is, but you know Chris Hayes would be right up there over at MSNBC for them. They would need to explain. Things like uh, a moment like this uh, where he's giving a presentation in front of an audience on TV. And sure enough, he decides to just go ahead and say some stuff. Play clip one. But I think there's actually a deeper philosophical thing happening, which is the question of what exactly American democracy is for. And the weirdest thing about the Electoral College is the fact that if it wasn't specifically in the Constitution for the presidency, it would be unconstitutional. Here's what I mean by that. Starting the 1960s, 1961. Just pause for one second. Pause for one second. If it was not in the Constitution, it would be unconstitutional. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose that's true. Um, wow. All right. Now, but now, of course, he has more of an explanation for it than that. Uh, this is the Electoral College. Which, uh, there's a, a broader point here other than just me making fun of anchors at other networks. But go ahead, play it. Philosophical thing happening, which is the question of what exactly American democracy is for. And the weirdest thing about the Electoral College is the fact that if it wasn't specifically in the Constitution for the presidency, it would be unconstitutional. Here's what I mean by that. Starting in the 1960s, 1961, uh, particularly, the Supreme Court started developing a jurisprudence of one person, one vote, right? The idea is that each individual vote has to carry roughly the same amount of weight as each other individual vote. 
which is a pretty intuitive concept, but it was not a reality. There are all sorts of crazy representational systems that were created that would not give one person one vote and would disenfranchise certain minorities. You can guess which ones. Here's an example. Let's say you've got a city, it's 60% black and it's 40% white, okay? Here's how you ensure white people stay in charge. Divide the city into four voting districts, right? But you put the entire black population in one district, 60% of the people. And then each district elects one city council member. And voila, now the city council for a majority black city is run by a majority white government. Now, this is, another, this is a discussion that he, he turns into of redistricting. So, yes, if it's not in the Constitution, it would be unconstitutional. Uh, there's a reason why we have, I mean, states, for example, exist within our framework the way that they do because of the vision of the founders, because we don't want direct democracy. We don't want people just voting. 51% gets to do whatever they want. That's why we have Constitution in the first place. In fact, what libs don't seem to understand, including Mr. Hayes, is that the very... Uh, checks and balance uh, checks and balances they often talk about but never seem to give much thought to are all about preventing majoritarian tyranny it's not supposed to be i mean if you're really going to take one person one vote to its its complete conclusion it would be 50 51% can do whatever they want yet we have these other rules we have a bill of rights and we also have the power of states versus the power of say, the, uh, the House of Representatives. I mean, Senate representation versus state representation. These things were done on purpose. And so, yes, it, it, it's, it's almost like he's discovered there, there's a constitution that means that it's not just as clear as one person, one vote. Libs say things like, we live in a democracy, and they get annoyed when, when people like me say, well, actually, we live in a constitutional republic. They go, oh, whatever, we have democratic systems. In play. Okay, but they seem to really believe we do just live in a democracy. Like, we have this big mob of people and if you're a citizen or not even, doesn't matter, just you're a human being who happens to be in the territory of what is called the United States, you get to vote, and then you count up all the votes, and whoever has more of those votes wins. Whatever the issue is, however they want it. And you make you get a very clear sense, I think, from liberals that the institutions that our entire government uh, is, that our entire government are based on they have a problem with the moment that it's not giving them the thing that they want. They have no respect for the institutions of our government as envisioned by the founders to protect from the tyranny of the majority, right? To, to protect basic rights and dissenting voices, and also, quite honestly, to slow the mechanisms of government to make it hard to do big sweeping reform, to make it hard to do massive intrusive legislation and 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 all right we're, and we're losing this fight all the time we've been losing this fight now pretty consistently when you're talking about federal overreach and you can look at supreme court decisions like wickard v filburn as part of the backdrop for all this but we, we've been losing this battle for a long time and what's particularly uh, interesting and this is this is a a point that maybe we'll expand upon another time is that the federalist system we have has been under tremendous pressure because specifically of the immorality of some states in their oppression of minorities. Now, this is where you come into, well, can you, uh, you know, can a state make make certain determinations about, you know, private property rights? You know, can a state say that, 
you're allowed to um, discriminate against people in a public accommodation, for example. And some libertarians have gotten a lot of trouble because they say, oh, well, if it's your property, you do whatever you want. Well, no, that's not the country we want to live in. And so that means that there are these there are federal civil rights laws that you'd be violating with those states. But as a result of that, once that concession is made, that there are things that are just wrong that a state does, even if they would be otherwise uh, within the bounds of the Constitution, or even if they would be otherwise not necessarily uh, in violation of existing federal statute before the civil rights statutes came into play. uh, Now there's been a an establishment of the there's a precedent that if there's something that a state is doing that is just we all deem it to be wrong it to be unethical uh we can't allow states to just do those things so the federal government uh swoops in so there are no question there are pressures on the federalist system that we have the federal government now reigns supreme in a way that i think would have been very very troubling to the the vision of the founders originally but you're also not going to ever win the argument these days with, well, you know, a state should be allowed to discriminate when it comes to public accommodations. People are going to say, no, that's racist. You can't do that. So there there are some interesting, more nuanced discussions to be had here about our institutions. But the Hayes version is just, well, if it wasn't in the Constitution, it'd be unconstitutional. The Hayes version is to say, one, that redistricting is, is a Republican, a racist Republican plot when in reality, first of all, the segregationists were all Democrats. Start with that. Uh, But beyond that, Democrats, when they control the state legislature, they do all kinds of redistricting. And there's no such thing as a districting plan that doesn't, at some point, seem kind of arbitrary. You know, where do you draw the line? If you've got a city that's a perfect circle uh, and you've got 50,000 people in the city and you've got to cut it up into three congressional districts... Well, no matter how, if you just draw lines on a map, you're going to have more population in one area than others. I mean, there's no, it's like drawing lines on a map for a country. There's always some degree of arbitrary to it. Uh, so I, I think that they ignore that in these in these discussions. And they've lost the Supreme Court on this one. Um, but I know this, this discussion got a little more in the weeds, perhaps, than I had initially intended it to. But, uh, yeah, MSNBC and CNN, a lot of people that... Uh, are way less intellectually impressive than they think they are. That That's one of the takeaways. And also that they are willing to repudiate our institutions as outmoded. And, you know, Ezra Klein once very memorably said, the thing about the Constitution is that it's very, very old. Thanks, Ezra. Well, no, you don't hear that guy's name anymore. In the Obama era, he was a, he was a guy with a lot of access and a lot of sway. But I think uh, the day of the, of the Ezra Klein's uh, super nerd kingdom is is not what it used to be uh we'll be right back the resignation letter is in that book and it's been made public did was it your decision to leave or were you fired or were you pushed into resigning or pressured into resigning it was completely my decision to leave i had i believe a good relationship with the president i've read some of the stories that we didn't have a good relationship it was very forthright i would have uh time with the president weekly over lunch private lunch or in his office uh the president knew everything i was doing and i I understood what the president wanted done there just came a point where i thought he needed a different secretary of defense so there's a a big media frenzy around general mattis right now and i think you all understand why why that's the case uh sure he was a 40-year veteran of the of the marine corps 
He was a uh, Trump secretary. He was Trump secretary of defense and is generally among the very few senior uh, senior officials in the tr- that serve in the Trump administration that are not hated by the left. I mean, there's really there are very very few. It was Mattis, and uh, for for a short period of time, uh, you know, there was the National Security Advisor McMaster um, that people had a had a pretty high opinion of. I think uh, n- now you've got Mattis who's writing a who's got a book that's coming out. He's not writing a book. A book that's coming out in the next week or so. I, I always wonder, do, do people read these, like, you know, does, does every government official now have to put out a book explaining their version of events and their story? I, I, I do think that we've reached a bit of a saturation point here. Yeah, we got every president, every vice president, I mean, every president. We got, I think Hillary, hello, has like 15 books or something that have been, Written, ghost written, written for her, but she put out something like 15 books. Uh, does anyone really think that those books were a contribution to anything other than the Clinton bank account? Uh, you, you have a lot of former officials now, every former CIA director and every former, there's a, they're all writing books all the time. And very rarely, I mean, I've read a bunch of them, very rarely is there any real insight and it just feels like this is now a stepping stone. I'm just going to keep it real with you. I'm just going to tell you the truth. If it's like a stepping stone. Uh, I want to be on the lecture circuit and make a lot of money and sell books on the lecture circuit. They're not setting things right. They're not answering big, important public questions. And in the case of Mattis, who is very highly regarded. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. I, I don't know Mattis. Now, some of you might get a little mad at me for this. I don't know Mattis. Never worked with him, or I should say worked for Although technically when you're in the CIA, you don't work for the Pentagon. Uh, but you know, I, I, I never dealt with him, right? I had some dealings back in the day with other four stars. Uh, I dealt with McKiernan. I dealt with uh, Petraeus. I dealt, you know, some of these. But I never dealt with Mattis. I, because of the Petraeus experience, I do think that generals that have an aura, a mystique around them with the media, when, when everyone in the media feels like, oh, that general's a... That general's a real, a modern-day Cincinnatus. You know, that general's, I always want to say, hmm, well, how did did that perception come to be? And and I do think that we have have almost an obligation now to ask these questions because if you think about what was said about James Comey, what was said about Bob Mueller, we are told, often we are told repeatedly that these individuals are remarkable paragons of virtue unparalleled in their uh, you know their knowledge and wisdom in their field and, and then we find out oh they're actually not really that at all and they're politicians who happen to have very senior jobs in very large national security bureaucracies i am not saying that is the case about mattis i'm just saying that i'm now less likely to accept the consensus uh reputation of a national security, particularly a military figure, somebody that's been in the military brass for a long time because of what we've learned in recent years. I mean, you know, Petraeus, to those who really knew him, was considered a very imperious guy, kind of in love with himself, who thought he was really amazing and should be the next president. I mean, that's to the people, and I knew people that knew him very well, dealt with him all the time, and that's what they say. I don't have the same insight into, into Mattis's character other than it's a little too... A little too, uh, oh gosh, 
he's this warrior monk for all ages thing. I'm I'm just going to say it. I'm maybe that is true, but I don't think that someone needs to say, for example, publicly that they own seven thousand books and they've read every single one of them, which has been said of Mattis. I also would question really seven thousand books. That's a lot. Think about what the math would be on that, my friends. That's a lot of books. It's a lot. Uh, not reading anything other than books, apparently. And that's by Mattis's own count. So maybe he's the most amazing person in the history of the universe. Uh, you know, I, I can't speak to that. I do know that he's he's releasing a book while also saying that he uh, owes the president a period of silence. But he's releasing a book and he's giving interviews. So, hmm. So we're supposed to be thankful, I guess, that he's not criticizing Trump openly, but he won't say nice things about him either. So we're pretty we're pretty uh, certain that he doesn't have a very high opinion of this president. Here's more of what he said in that interview. Play 17. Do you think the president got wrong about Syria? Well, I think when you leave an administration over policy matters, and I laid that out in the letter when I noted the, the need for allies and all, I think you owe a period of silence afterwards. We have a million troops around the world who are trying to defend this experiment we call America. I don't believe that administration officials should should leave the administration and then start creating controversy uh, with comments outside uh, when they uh, when they owe a period of I don't even call it a duty of silence. A duty of silence, but he's promoting a book in which he talks about his relationship with the current president. So really what he's saying is you have a duty to not trash the current commander-in-chief. Okay, but we can infer a lot from the fact that he has very little to say about this president that is positive, and I would just note that uh, if, if Matt, from, from what we have been told and what I believe Mattis himself says, we are to believe that the big problem was that Mattis wanted to keep a pretty large contingent in Syria and, and Trump wanted to uh, lower the troop levels in Syria and eventually have no troops in Syria. Um, you know, Mattis and Petraeus and McChrystal, and these are generals that all uh, held in very high esteem. And I think the public wants to believe that our generals are the warrior monks of one kind or another. They don't have to be actual monks in their private lives, but, you know, they're just true devotees of the craft of of leading men and making war. Uh, the history of the last two decades when it comes to this country's strategic military decision-making, uh, you know, the top level, not the tactical victory day-to-day. I mean, we've got the best fighting men and women in the world, and they keep winning and winning on the battlefield. But the overall picture in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, often... If it gets better, it's only getting better for a sh- on a short-term basis. And in Afghanistan, it really hasn't gotten better. So I'm not sure that just because Mattis is super smart and read a lot of books and been in the military for 40 years that he's right about Syria. Uh, that we should because the problem with, with leaving a few thousand troops in Syria indefinitely is now Syria is your problem too. And you know this is Iraq is already our problem. So you can make an argument about drawing down or not there. Uh, based upon the obligations that we have set forth. Uh, but we're already there, and we broke it, and we own it kind of a thing. We don't really own it, but, you know, it's we, we have an obligation. Same thing in Afghanistan. We, we really don't want to make that the blueprint that we then play out again in Syria. Things could turn in Syria very quickly. If we have a few thousand troops there, all of a sudden we might need to have 50,000 troops there. 
Uh, so I, I'm not sure that just because he's Mattis, he's right on this one. And um, I, I think we all need to ask real questions about people that have held a lot of power in government. I got to tell you guys, I watched the Dave Chappelle Sticks and Stones uh, comedy special of the weekend, as I said I would, and I thought it was excellent. I think it was just okay, you know, laugh here and there. I thought it was really, really funny. It wasn't perfect. No comedy special ever is. There are a few bits here and there that fell a little flat for me, but... Overall, I have to say, I thought it was pretty excellent. And in particular, I like the fact that as advertised, meaning based on how upset the woke crowd got, uh, he did, in fact, make some jokes, not mean jokes, just jokes like ha ha laughing, pointing out some things, but not wasn't punching down it wasn't being uh you know nasty but he made some jokes that are clearly no longer acceptable uh in the world of the social justice warrior he made some jokes that people would say oh no you can't do that you can't do that but he did he did and it was a reminder that comedy is not yet dead i mean libs are trying to kill it there's no question that the libs out there really do believe that they have an obligation to shut down, uh, shut down anybody that would make jokes about any. When, when I say jokes about a, a protected group, he's not even really making fun of the people in the group. He's making jokes that people in different groups could laugh at. But I was wondering, what was it that was so, because Dave Chappelle, he uses a lot of, uh, he uses a lot of profanity, a lot of racial uh uh, you know, he uses racial slang and things like that. You know, he says a lot of stuff. So if you're not, if you're somebody that's not okay with that, just know that he's, his comedy is edgy, to say the least. He definitely pushes some buttons and it's it can be a little bit raunchy. And yeah, I mean, think like, you know, back in the day, someone like Richard Pryor, for example, pushing boundaries and very willing to say things that uh, at the time, some people, at least, were a little bit scandalized by, oh, my gosh, he said that thing. He can't say that thing. That's unacceptable. Right? I mean, this is what we would always hear. And when you watch the Dave Chappelle sketch, the area, it's very clear that the part of it that he was most uh, that, that he upset the left the most with was he talked about what he called the alphabet people. I had never heard this term before. I assume that he made it up. But the alphabet people in Dave Chappelle's referencing are members of the LGBT community. And he made some very amusing, uh, observational humor, you know, humor about it. I mean, he made some jokes about it. It was very funny. And I just don't think that any person could watch that and think that he stepped over the line. It was malicious. It was nasty. It wasn't at all. It was just making jokes. It was making the kind of jokes where if he had people who were there watching with him who were LGBT, they could have laughed, too, I would think, assuming that the individuals involved here have a sense of humor, they would have laughed, too. It wasn't mocking them. It was making jokes that involve observations about, about that group. Um, but, you know, the left is particularly 
uh, touchy about anything that has to do with transgender individuals. I mean, that's where they really want to uh, stake a claim that y- you cannot make any jokes about anything transgender related without feeling their wrath. And I, I give Dave Chappelle credit because he went there. He went there and it was it was very, very amusing, very worthwhile. And I like that he st- starts out very early on calling out cancel culture. Uh, cancel culture, cancel culture, which is this this uh, this notion that people should want anyone that says anything ever, not even recently, could have been 20 years old. It doesn't matter that if you've ever offended the social justice left or said something or done something, even if it's discovered and it was very minor at the time, or, it's not enough to shame you now. You have to be fired. There must be consequences. There must be consequences against you if you upset the social justice left. They, they, they want action to be taken at your expense. This is now the, the new expectation that we should all have. So that is what cancel culture has become. And I think it is a cancer on American society. It is a relatively uh, new phenomenon it really used to be the case that if you upset it and this was true particularly uh, i remember some years ago if you upset the l uh l g b usually it didn't really happen as much but if you upset the the lesbian or gay community you were expected to make a very uh broad show of penance you know i'm sorry for you know i'm sorry for being a person that said something offensive or I made a joke that crossed the line or I said something homophobic, whatever. And you were you had to do that. And sometimes I think that people were way too strict with what required that degree of ritual self-flagellation. But yeah, you had to do that. And then you'd be okay. Now it's they want you to apologize and then once you've apologized, they want you fired and they never want you hired again. Right? That's cancel culture. It's it's the next level and this goes to what I was telling you about what I was saying to you last week, that slopes are slippery, that when you see the progressive left in particular attains power in certain areas, right, I, I gather around ideas that they believe give them the, the right to say what can and cannot be said and that there must be uh, social and professional and even legal consequences for anybody who would say otherwise it always gets worse. They're never content with whatever power they have. They just want to move on to you know, the, the, the thing about people who are power hungry is that the greed that they feel for power is never satiated. They never there's no such thing for somebody that really wants power. Oh, I've got enough now. They're always going to want more. They're always going to look to the next way that they can uh, wield that authority. And because so, usually the people that want to wield in the first place are. True believers of one kind or another. They're, they are devotees to a society in which dissent must be silenced, in which criticism uh, of, of ideas is not allowed. You must go forward and worship at the altar that they tell you to. You have to become a, an intellectual devotee of the orthodoxy they lay out for you. You, you can't deviate from it. Otherwise, you'll be punished as a heretic. Uh, Dave Chappelle made some jokes that they would consider heretical. I think any normal person would just find them funny. 
Uh, and they were not mean spirited. It was not there was n- there was nothing about the jokes about the alphabet people, as he calls them in particular, that were meant to make people think less of those individuals to to look down upon those individuals. He was ju- it was comedy. It was humor. And I'm just not willing to give up comedy in society. And I, I have a lot of frustration because on this show, even I, I will make some jokes here and there. I'll do some voices there is so much that I have to self-censor because I, I can't withstand a cancel culture uh, assault. I, I would not be in a I would not be in a position to uh, recuperate or come back from a cancel uh, culture ambush of one kind or even if I wasn't trying to push boundaries necessarily. So. This is something that that feels very personal to me. And look, I'm not Dave Chappelle. I'm not super famous and super rich. And I'm not probably the premier African-American comedian of my generation, perhaps the premier comedian period of his generation. Uh, You know, Dave Chappelle is is a is a phenomenon. He's he's a force of nature. Um, I think you should watch Dicks and Stones. Some of it might. You find uh, you might find that a little bit over the line, but overall, I think you'll be very happy you did. I was really impressed. And like I said, comedy's not dead yet. Let's not let it die. So I've moved into a new apartment, which I told you about. And anytime you move, I've got to tell you, you're in for you're in for some surprises, and usually not of the fun variety. Usually, the surprises you deal with when you move are things that you wish you had known about beforehand. But I'm. I'm somebody who has some some idiosyncrasies. And among those idiosyncrasies, I hate excessive noise. And it's not hard to drive me more or less insane. Insane in the membrane. Insane in the brain. Uh, by making noise that is unnecessary. I've already told you about whistles. So everyone in my building thought I was perhaps the new madman on... On the on the new floor where they just they just finished this uh, this apartment, and I, I thought no 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 guys I'm really not crazy. There's a there's a very high pitched squeaky machine noise, and especially in the dead of night, um, I could hear it very clearly. And they kind of just told me, look, you know, crazy person. I mean, they didn't say that, but that was definitely the vibe. That was the vibe they were putting out there. They said, okay, crazy person, um, what? What about you wait until labor or after Labor Day and then we'll actually have some of the people who work for the building look into this? And I said, no, no, you don't understand. It's not this building. It's outside the building. So I took it upon myself in New York City, which is a place full of all kinds of um, noise of, you know, ambient noise, machine noise, HVAC noise that I was going to find the source of this very irritating high squeak, this mechanical, you know, you know, this squeaking noise from a, I mean, that's, that's kind of my best impersonation of it from a, an HVAC system or something like that. And it just wouldn't stop. I would hear it all the time. And it was driving me crazy. It was driving me a little bit nuts. So uh, I I finally I went building to building, like a like a person who was possessed, and I begged because they have no obligation whatsoever to help you. Really, I mean I I could have gotten a city inspector to come, but you know that's going to take weeks, and who knows? And is it too late? 
But I, I said, look, please be a good neighbor. I'm telling you, I can hear this thing. It comes right into my bedroom, right in my apartment. And I was very proud of myself. I went, Mark, I went to uh, three different buildings, got them to, to go up to the roof and and show me. And, you know, we went through this whole, okay, we they hit this switch and that switch, the other thing. And then finally, uh, the first two, it wasn't those buildings. So you can imagine they were like, okay, okay, crazy, you know. Like, there's no noise, so thanks for making us go up to the rooftop for no reason. Third building, we they go up there, and I can see them from my window, and I'm on the phone with the guy, and I, I knew that it was a bell, because I talked to my HVAC expert friends on the subway the follow, you know, the few days before, right? I, all you need to do in New York is walk around the subway enough, and you'll find somebody, you know, you'll find a brain surgeon, you'll find an astrophysicist, you'll find an HVAC tech, you'll find whatever you need. So I, I got this guy, he went up there, and he pulled this, ancient-looking, rusty metal cover off some very nondescript piece of equipment. And I'm telling you, this, the noise that this thing made without the cover on top of it was like, it was like a thousand banshees screaming at once. I can't even begin to make it on radio. And the guy hit some other switch and turned off this noise. I'm not exaggerating, Mark, when I tell you that in New York, this is one of my biggest victories in recent <laughs> In recent memory, I was able to sleep over the weekend. I found the source of the noise. That's really impressive. It is impressive. It was yeah. really hard to do. It was, that takes dedication, what you did. I went nuts. Yeah. I was going building to building, and I had to convince them to take me up to their roof. I'm some stranger. They don't know who I am. There was no team buck involved in this. I didn't get lucky with that one. I was hoping someone would be like, oh, yeah, shield's high. We'll take you up to the roof. Nope, because I'm in Commieville, New York. But uh, they were very nice, actually, and each one of the buildings did did uh, either go up there and have me look from my vantage point to hear the sound. or Anyway, so I managed to figure it out. But I'll tell you this, man. I was sure that I knew it was the first building, and I was wrong. Very hard to tell where ambient noise is coming from in New York City. This place is it's cacophonous. That's just the word of the day. Remember when O'Reilly used to do the word of the day? I kind of miss Bill. I like, I like the factor. All right, roll call's coming up, but big victory for Buck. Yay me. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for roll call. Indeed. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to be in on the roll call action. Also want to let you know that I will be uh, doing a little event, a little speech here in New York City uh, for the New York Young Republicans. We're going to talk about wartime conservatism. It'll be at the Na- Women's National Republican Club, 3 West 51st, 51st Street, between 5th and 6th Avenues on September the 19th. That's a Thursday, September the 19th. Doors open at 645 PM. So the New York Young Republicans are having me come to talk about wartime conservatism, and it'll be really fun and interesting stuff. Thursday, September 19th, uh, come check it out. And uh, the at the door, it's 10 bucks. So there you go. All righty. That's a fun one. For those who are Team Buck local, as in here in the N to the Y to the C. Uh, you can come and hang out. There's there's a, a a bar there, and people will be, including me, 
we'll be having some some drinks. Uh, there will be adult beverages served, so it'll be a fun a fun thing to do. Uh, and with that, we turn to you, my dear friends. What do you have in mind for all of us today? What are your thoughts on all the latest and greatest? Stop stalling, Buck. Your Facebook has obviously frozen, and you are in the midst of a live radio show, so you should probably just get right to it, which I'm about to. <laughs> this is like eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Uh, here we go. Um, okay, Seth. Hey, Buck. Hope you guys are all doing well. And hope you had a wonderful Labor Day. So today is my birthday, and I was wondering if I could do a birthday shout-out on my Facebook page, if that's possible. If not, absolutely. No worries. Just thought I'd ask. Stay cool, my friend. Uh, Seth, uh, happy birthday, man. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I think, wait, did we see this? Is this in time to do it today? Yeah, I I think so. Well, we will. We've given you a birthday shout-out. I hope that is good. I hope that helps. So there, there you go. Um, let us see, my friends. Next up in the roll call, Robert. Here we go. Dear Buck, on your Labor Day program, you mentioned the distortions by leftists against President Trump, and in particular those of Beto O'Rourke and his lies and twisting of the facts and attacking the president. A few weeks prior to that, I had sent you a commentary on the subversive influence of the Soviet communist against our American society titled the Democrats are now the Russians destroying church and state from within. I am sure that you will recall that it was said about the communists that they would lie, cheat and use any means to achieve their ends. The poison which they instilled remains that is now emerging even more strongly under the Democrats and the left. Your comments about Mr. O'Rourke and the others reaffirm the message of that commentary. Sincerely, Robert. Well, Robert, I'm glad that my comments reaffirm it. So thank you so very much for writing in. Good to talk to you, my friend. Randy! Hey, Buck. Shields High. Love the show. Randy, love your taste in radio. Byron York reported that Jim Comey intended to ambush President-elect Trump in January uh, January 6, 2017 meeting. The cover story seems to be that he, Comey, along with Clapper and John Brennan, gave the same briefing to President Obama the day before. My alarm bells are going off. They didn't brief President Obama. They conspired and planned with him how to ambush, how the ambush on Trump was going to go. What do you think? Uh, well, I'd have to check. Uh, I think you're telling me that there's a uh, that there was supposed to be an Obama briefing. I don't remember if that happened or not. I. You know, now enough time has passed, and this is one of the problem, problems with stretching out getting of the truth in these scenarios in such a way that it's very hard to really know, to, to remember what you've already learned in that whole process. Um, so, yes, I, I don't know about that. I can just tell you that they – look, Comey, I think you can make a case that he was building a – blackmail file on Trump in case he had any problems with Trump down the line. That's very clear. I think you could also make the case that he wasn't building a blackmail file to hold as a as a hedge to hold in order to have something on Trump if and when things went wrong for him. But really, 
created this oppo file uh, or or was using this oppo file that he had a, a hand in creating as a means of ousting the president from office so essentially the, there's the there's the holding it in his back pocket for a rainy day scenario with comey or there's going all out and trying to use it as a way to get the president out of office right away i think i can be convinced that comey was doing either of those things it's not it's not apparent to me that he definitely was doing one or the other. I mean, rather, you could make the case to me that he was doing either. Nate. It's tough to know unless you're actually coming. Buck, it's Nate from Iowa. Oh, Nate from Iowa. Regarding the comment concerning glacier ice melt the other day, I would caution using this claim as the following caveat uh, applies. Fresh water will display salt water when melting due to the difference in density However, when salt water glaciers melt, they displace similar, if not less, volume regarding total ocean saline water volume. I challenge any who refute this to claim to use the true scientific method and conduct the experiment. Love your work. Shields high. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's like I'm back in eighth grade science class. I don't know. I don't really know. Talking about salinity water, or salinity in water and its displacement versus fresh water. I don't know. Whatever the smart people say. That's what I'll go with. Whatever the smart people say. Uh, let's see. Dennis, I'm a correctional officer in a Wisconsin state prison. Currently work in a medium security facility. We're currently about 50 officers short, which means 250 shifts per week need to be filled by current security staff, uh, by scheduled or pre-forced overtime. This doesn't count shifts that need to be covered when inmates go out on medical trips that can last for several days. I schedule my overtime, so I'm never forced for a shift when I should be leaving. Uh, sometimes even 80 hours a week. Corrections is not a labor-intensive job, but it wears you out mentally. Well, Dennis, uh, sorry to hear that that's been going on, my friend, but it is good to know that you are... Uh, you know, work, working hard and keeping us safe and, you know, stay strong, my friend. I don't know. That, that sounds like a, a tough schedule you've got going there for sure. Uh, Matthew writes, uh, hold on. If you want to see a new cult classic is deemed one of the best modern meta horror movies, see Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Tucker and Dale are blue-collar rednecks that finally saved enough money to buy their vacation home, a broken-down shack by a lake, and get accused of being murdering hillbillies by camping millennial college kids. That actually sounds kind of... That actually sounds like it might be kind of good. You know, I, I miss just people making movies that were, that were just fun, just meant to entertain people. They're not... Uh, and don't tell me, oh, but what about superhero movies? Superhero movies are all the same thing, and it's for the foreign market. It's not even really for the American market anymore. Uh, this Tucker and Dale versus Evil. It looks a little bit like, um, what's that? What was that movie with the guy who, Evil Dead, I think? Does that sound right? Or he's got like a chainsaw, and he fights zombies, and there's all. Do you know what I'm talking about, Mark? No, not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. Oh, that's right. Producer Brandon is the horror movie buff. I could I could mention some obscure horror movie from the nineteen the nineteen nineties made in Korea, 
and he would he would tell me who the director was. You know, he's really yeah, up he's there. a little scary with that stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's really into it. I told him I was like, "Hey, you ever seen a movie that like freaked you out too much?" He started to describe what the premise of one movie that did. I said, "How did you watch that? Good heavens, good heavens, man!" All right, uh, let's see, Michael. Uh, right. Currently, I'm speaking to someone that fully believes in climate change, and he's willing to talk about it in a very civil manner, which is very rare in this day and age. I've spoken on how the data is manipulated how to, and how uh, change to fit the narrative of the left, and, and the, word changes that, the word changes that have happened with this subject, global cooling to global warming to climate change. It has changed every time the data doesn't fit the narrative. I tried to find the data on the subject, but surprise, it isn't going to show up on a Google search. In your research, have you found out, or can help me find the answers to this heated subject, um, Michael? No, they won't. They won't publish. They won't publish a. Uh, they won't publish the specific data on uh, their climate projections and also the measurements because they worry that if people have access to the data, th- this happens again and again. The uh, if they have access to the data, then they won't be able to change the data when they inevitably will have to. Because they have had to so many times in the past. They're just wrong. They keep on being wrong. So they now prepare for that. They have to deal with that ahead of time. Ari, I work at night and love listening to your podcast. You're so adorable. When you were talking about watching a show behind your mother, babysitter's back, it cracked me up. Sonny, all right, man, thanks. I like, I like to think that I'm adorable. I'll take it. Catherine, hey Buck, while Blue Bloods is good, in fact a great family story, try NYPD Blue, it's gritty NYC in the 90s, continued success, love you, Mrs. D. Uh, Well, Mrs. D, thank you so much for writing in, good to hear from you, and uh, yeah, I will check out, I remember NYPD Blue getting so much attention when I was younger, but I was too young to watch it, but I I know that it got a... A lot of the media folks are like, ooh, NYPD Blue. And I'd, I'd go into the grocery store, I remember my mom sometimes, and I would see all these references to things in the newsstands right by the checkout. And I wouldn't really know what was going on, but I, but NYPD Blue actors were in the tabloids. That guy with the red hair, forget his name, he was in the tabloids a lot. All right, that's going to be it for today's show. Hope you found it as fantastic as I did. I will be back here tomorrow, same time, same place, and we'll talk to you then. Shields high.